Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors. I'm your host and dean of the Marine Corps War College, Becky Johnson. Today we're discussing Iran, building bridges and widening gulfs. My guests today are Ali Alfani, senior fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, D.C. He's author of Iran Unveiled, How the Revolutionary Guards Are Transforming Iran from Theocracy into Military Dictatorship, published by AEI Press. He is currently researching political succession in contemporary Iran. Alex Vitanka, Senior Fellow at the Middle East Institute, also in Washington. Mr. Vitanka serves as Senior Fellow in Middle East Studies at the U.S. Air Force Special Operations School. He is author of Iran-Pakistan, Security, Diplomacy, and American Influence, and is presently working on his second book, The Making of Iranian Foreign Policy, Contested Ideology, Personal Rivalries, and the Domestic Struggle to Define Iran's Place in the World. Finally, we have Dr. Amin Tarzi, Director of Middle East Studies here at Marine Corps University, Dr. Tarzi very graciously organized this panel for our students. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Alfani, I'll start with you. What can we make of the U.S.'s re-imposition of sanctions against Iran? Is this tied to any discrete action that Tehran has taken regarding the nuclear program, or does it signal larger discontent with Iran's actions in the region? Washington was truly divided at the time that the previous administration reached the agreement with the Islamic Republic concerning Iran's controversial uh, nuclear program. Uh, At the time, the Obama administration was trying to solve only and only the nuclear crisis. Uh, The uh, Republican Party and many even uh, members of the Democratic Party, they believed that there were some other issues involving Iran which needed to be addressed including the role that the Islamic Republic has played in the Middle East region since 1979, and the fact that the Islamic Republic has accelerated its regional outreach and is trying to export its regime to the Middle East region uh, more aggressively since 2001, those issues were not addressed by the nuclear Uh, agreement. So this is why the current administration is trying to rectify the uh, what they perceive as mistakes and shortcomings of the previous agreements. Great, thank you. Mr. Vitanka, could you speak to the regional and broader implications of the pressure being applied to other countries to comply with this reimposition of sanctions? You know, this is really a pretty delicate uh, position for the U.S. to be in because we know what we don't like in terms of Iran's behavior in the region. Uh, And that's not even to talk about what they're doing to their own people at home. But we certainly have a lot of grievances against Iranian behavior in places like Iraq and Syria, elsewhere, what we consider to be Iranian meddling. And uh, we will, as we just heard, we want to sort of push back against that to the extent that we can. Uh, That is not a new policy. Uh, We have one way or another tried to do that going back to the early 1980s with President Reagan. The problem we have right now, and we see examples of this as we speak here today, is that some of our allies or countries that we like to help are in a position where they can really come along with us on this right against Iran because they are, you know, involved in their own dynamics with the Iranians. Uh, Let's take the Iraqis. Iraq is a country the United States would like to see up on its feet and be stronger in the campaign against uh, ISIS and so forth. 
Well, what happens when, as is the case with Iraq, they have a good relationship with the Iranians, that they're economically reliant on trade with Iran, and at times actually have good military ties with the Iranians. What do we tell the Iraqis in Baghdad? That you have to do as we say? Do we put them in a position where they have to choose between us and the Iranians? That's not a good position to be in if you're Iraq, and they might just choose the Iranians because we can't really predict that outcome. That would be horrendous from a U.S. strategic point of view. After years of being involved in Iraq, to put the Iraqis in that position would be horrible. And I can cite similar examples with other neighboring states of Iran, like Turkey, Afghanistan, so forth. So time will show what happens. But the, the fact is, it's one thing to um, cut Iran's oil off to global markets. It's another thing to get, get some of the neighboring states, that some of them happen to have good ties in the United States, to join us in this endeavor. But as I said, only time will show what happens. Okay, great. Thank you. Dr. Tarzi, what do these development, developments mean for the warfighter? How should our students be interpreting the reimposition of sanctions against Iran? Uh, thank you. I think the first thing is it shows that, you know, when we look at war as politics by other means, right now the politics are very unpredictable. Uh, we could say that at, at one point, if there was an international agreement, it could show that it had a duration where, for what it was. In this case, we see that uh, it, it did not. And, and it means that the warfighter has to be ready for situations where uh, even on paper it showed 10 years or 15 years or perhaps a stalemate, if nothing else, in watching Iran to make sure that they do not cheat within that agreement. And, but here in this case, of course, everything changes. So that's what first thing is to be ahead of even the political agreements that are signed, whether, whether it's by the United States or internationally. So the unpredictability of, of the situations where the warfighter is there and has, is changing, this is one of them. Secondly, it also shows that within the international agreement, international uh, dialogues, individual countries can make changes. And in this case, of course, the United States was the country that brought the change about. The warfighters from the U.S. side have to be ready for the consequences, if there are any consequences. But this could also happen by a, a, another country within an agreement, not in, only in this case of Iran. Uh, so again, it shows that we have to be uh, more, even more vigilant about what, what, you know, what, what happens. And thirdly, again, this is a, a broader question which uh, is the utility of nuclear weapons or even the attempt to acquire them, it does change the dynamics of balance of power, dynamics of how the United States treats countries that try to acquire nuclear weapons. And, and in my view, as, as warfighters go for, for, you know, forward in this, this century, I think they should look at more, not less, attempts by countries to try to acquire nuclear weapons because they believe that the United States of America in a way reacts or respects that uh, and, and that again creates uh, more opportunities for conflict, potential conflict at least. That's an interesting point and I think it ties to what Mr. Vitanka was just talking about that it's not just if you work for CENTCOM that this is going to matter for you. This works if you're, it's important to you if you're at STRATCOM or or European command. I'd, I'd read something earlier this week about the European reaction to sanctions being revoked and what they might do to try to keep their own countries and own um, own companies in line. Uh, we can't just 
look at this from the perspective of U.S.-Iranian relations, it, it, we have exactly. to take it in a much it larger... Is, it is also within NATO. This is this is a question within Absolutely. NATO. So the NATO alliances, of course, and, then, of course, how we mitigate the, the uh, Russian or Chinese angles. Uh, another country that I personally am, am concerned in with all of this is, is our relationship with India. India mm. is, is, is not yet a U.S. ally, but there's a special partnership that's being built and, and the ending of GCPOA or the nuclear deal has a direct impact on India right now that's mit mitigated by short-term uh, uh, exemptions for India. But in the long run, if the United States were to look at India as a at least a counterbalance to China within the Indo-PACOM, which is the renamed what used to be PACOM, uh, that, that, that those are issues that it's not just Iran, that the ripple effects of these can go much wider uh, beyond energy, even which is which is worldwide, but into specific alliances, whether it is multilateral like NATO, but or is it a bilateral like India? Mm -hmm. So lots of planners out there updating their O plans right now. I, I, <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, yes. yes. So this is an open question to any of you. Could you could these sanctions be perceived as maybe the opening salvo to a new round of talks? That maybe this is a, a hard line push that could facilitate more fruitful diplomatic gains? Uh, so let's not forget that it was because of extreme pressure that the Islamic Republic accepted to engage in negotiations, which led to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, absent such a pressure, the Islamic Republic would never have accepted those uh, the, those conditions, which it met with, with, with the other uh, world powers. Uh, and now we are seeing signals from Tehran where representatives of different elites of the Islamic Republic are expressing similar willingness to engage in negotiations with the U.S. President Rouhani disclosed that his uh, foreign minister had negotiations in New York last year uh, with Secretary Tillerson. So, you know, and he emphasized in a televised interview that we not only uh, generally engage in discussions with the U.S., we also have no issue discussing and negotiating with the administration of President Trump. At the same time, Major General Qasem Soleimani, the chief commander of the Quds Force of the Revolutionary Guards, was out sending more or less similar signals. What he was saying was that after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, uh, he was in contact with General Petraeus, and he and General Petraeus agreed on certain terms uh, which in his uh, words, uh, and I do not uh, know if that is true, in his words, reduced the number of U.S. casualties in Iraq. So we have two representatives, each representing their own faction within the Islamic Republic, sending signals to Washington, expressing a degree of readiness to engage in talks with the U.S. with the expressed goal of removing the sanctions regime. You know, I think obviously it's pretty clear the Trump administration wants to talk to the Iranian authorities about a potential new deal. Um, the maximum pressure campaign is all about bringing the Iranians back to the table. And the United States, although this isn't always clear, uh, has said repeatedly, if you listen to various officials, including President Trump, that regime change is not what it takes for a new deal to to come about. That 
if the Iranians, um, you know, can fulfill some of the other uh, demands by the United States, that might just be enough. But if you look at those demands by the United States that were put out last year, the 12 points where Iran is expected to make concessions, that's almost a non-starter. I mean, basically what we're asking them to do is to entirely change what they are all about. It is uh, a, you know, a demand of capitulation, if you will. That Iranian regime is not going to do it. So the question is, how flexible are we on this side to say, all right, those are the 12 points. We still have concerns about all those 12 points, but they don't need to be included in the first round of negotiations as long as we can at least start talking. And I agree with Ali. There are folks in Tehran that are relevant, important people in Tehran who are saying, yeah, sure, why can't we talk Trump? If we could talk to President Obama, why can't we talk to President Trump? So, But the question is, what would it take for that initial um, kind of meeting to happen? Because if you go back to September of this year, you know, the entourage of President Rouhani went, went to great lengths to prevent even an accidental meeting between President Trump and President Rouhani, which is an indication, at least to me, that not everything is in order in Tehran in terms of who from the Iranian regime should take the lead in talking to the Americans. Should it be the president or the foreign minister, the so-called moderate camp? Should it be hardliners from the Revolutionary Guards? It shouldn't happen in, in Washington or Vienna. It should happen somewhere maybe in Syria, Iraq. Much more tactical negotiations about something much smaller, just in order to build confidence. You got confidence, you can talk about other things. I have no idea what's going to happen. Because the nuclear process, as we had in recent years, was about a single issue. But a single issue that was a multilateral issue. You had lots of other players involved. Here, really, what we're talking about is about all sorts of things the United States is angry about. And it involves really two parties only, the United States and Iran. And that might seem from the outside that this makes everything more simple, at least the part where you only have two negotiating parties. And yet it's not because they have to break their own individual taboos. And that's where we at. Do they, do they find it within themselves as regimes, as governments and so forth, to break that taboo and, and, and go back to the table and negotiate on? I think uh, just to add I, on Alex's point that the GCPOA was a multilateral or the specific issue which was cut off of, of enrichment. Uh, Today, what we might happen is, yes, it will be many issues but by, with two countries specifically, but there's a model, and that model has been uh, mentioned by, by the Trump administration. Uh, and the 12 points, I think, when you look at subsequent interventions, uh, they are not all mentioned. So there, there are certain, you know, that, that's a, you know, it's a starting point, and in every negotiation, you can come up with a lot of wishes, and, and as you go forward, you can, you can take some off of the table uh, as leverage, if you would. So the model that some have talked about openly, including President Trump himself, is, is the North Korea model. Uh, two countries which had no relationship, United States and North Korea, and there was a, a, a long list of problems, uh, but it comes into a, an agreement on at least some of them. Uh, so this is what Washington wants. It, this could be for Iran as well if regime security is paramount, which seems to be, uh, and right now the economic situation is very dire, uh, that if they can do a, a DPRK, North Korea-style negotiations, 
with the U.S. and Iran, but with you know even the DPRK issue, China is involved, if not directly on the table. Uh, Republic of Korea is involved. Japan is partially at least aware. So the countries that matter are brought in, if not directly on the table, but they have a stake at it. At least it could be a breakthrough. Uh, their taboos were broken on both sides, both on, on the U.S. our side and both on North Korea's side. Uh, if you would look at the rhetoric, the North Korean rhetoric is way worse against the United States than the Iranian, but yet they were they met each other. So it could open up. The question is, I think countries such as Russia, specifically in China, may not want that to happen. And if, if they don't want to happen, it becomes even more difficult. Mm, of course. So where do we go from here? As our listeners think ahead the next one to five years, does this development signal anything significant for the region, for the potential for conflict? You know, I think at least when I look at it from the debate in Tehran, it's very clear that their hope is they can wait President Trump out. I mean, there are, as we talked about just earlier, there are potentials for talks, direct talks between the Iranian regime and, and the Trump administrations. But, you know, they might be far-fetched. They might be unlikely to happen because of all sorts of factors. I mean, after all, this is not a fight that just broke out yesterday. We've got 40 years of history here, all sorts of baggage that both sides bring to the table. So it might just be too much. And that might lead some in Tehran to think the best thing to do is to stick to the nuclear agreement, make the United States look like the outlier. They are the ones who walk away from a multilateral treat, well, treaty, an agreement that was signed at the U.N. level at the UN level. The rest of the world still believes the nuclear deal from 2015 is a good thing. And Iran is sticking to it. They haven't breached it. So the Iranians could just be tempted to say, let the Americans look bad here. We take another two years. Then the Trump first term will come to an end. And maybe you'll have another American president who will take a very different approach because the nature of this deal, at, at least from how U.S. has signed it, it's on an executive level. So you don't have the U.S. Congress involved. President Obama had an executive decision, if you will, and President Trump undid that, right? So maybe that's how the Iranians are looking at it. But that's a big gamble because what happens if President Trump is reelected? And are they in a position to wait another four years on top of the two years they're going to wait for this first term to end? Because that means billions and billions of dollars in economic loss for them as these sanctions start to hurt them, as they will. Uh, and the on top of that is, you know, these economic pains are not going to happen in vacuum. There's a people in Iran that are going to be suffering. What would they do? How would they react? Would they come to the streets? So I think, you know, all these things uh, are factors we need to think about as we think about the next few years. My, my good friend, uh, Mr. Vatanka, presented the optimistic uh, uh, view, uh, which means what if uh, Iran and, and the Islamic Republic leaders think in a rational way and act in a rational way. But there may also be a different uh, scenario in which the uh, analysts and decision makers of the Islamic Republic uh, say that, well, North Korea, which has cheated and has uh, broken all the rules, has already uh, the nuclear weapons, was offered negotiations at the highest political level imaginable between the two countries, while we who abided by the terms of the rule under the nuclear agreement are being punished. We are no longer benefiting financially uh, from abiding by those rules. So why do we not reactivate the nuclear program? And that, of course, could accelerate a very serious crisis between the Islamic Republic and the United States. Uh, 
my view is that right now, at least right now, as I said in my first intervention, things could change very, very rapidly. Uh, but right now, the Iranians have taken a much more cautionary policy. Uh, if you look at on it on, on the ground or on, in the seas, uh, the buzzing of U.S. ships flying closer, which was which kind of heightened in the past few months, have almost diminished. Uh, in the case of when they were encouraging Hezbollah to, and even in their own forces within the, within the IRGC, to come very close to Israel in the Golan Heights, and actually they were intervening into Israeli airspace, whether by drones or, or rockets, that has diminished and through the Russian intervention. There's now a between 40 or more kilometer uh, zone where the Iranians and Hezbollah cannot come. That shows a regime that is first, as as Mr. Vatanka said before, and I agree, is not suicidal. Two, that they understand pressure. Uh, they are actually toning it down, not toning it up. Uh, some places like Yemen, Yemen is, 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 a, is a godsend for them. They, they are gaining a lot for putting very little. But when you see where the conflict with the United States, direct conflict is possible, they have actually stepped back, not forward, at the high seas and in case of Syria, especially when it comes to Israel. This doesn't mean that things cannot change. If they feel the pressure or the internal pressure comes so much that there is a, a let's say, a, a mass upheaval like 2009 that gets out of hand, at that point, would the regime actually take it into a place where a confrontation with the United States could be one way to save it. That, we again, goes back to the warfighter or to anyone in the policy realm. They have We have to be aware of that part of it, that this regime is survival. Of it is the most important thing, not so much uh, the, the, the Iranian nation as such. With that, I think right now, it, it, it is, the confrontation seems more distant, uh, but as I said, we have to be, be aware that it could happen with all the other aspects that are playing there. Mm -hmm. So certainly we have your fine organizations, your good research. All of you have Twitter handles, which we'll embed in the program notes. But if our listeners wanted to learn more about Iran, where else could they go? Well, I would, I would recommend all the listeners to follow Iranian news. Iran is not North Korea, and there is plenty of online debate going on. Uh, reading Iranian newspapers enables us to follow the politics of Iran. And there is also uh, plenty of English language newspapers available, dailies, which uh, American listeners can, can, can follow. You know, and I would say, because it's so easy, as Ali just pointed out, to sort of think maybe Iran is another North Korea, kind of a black hole on the map, it's not. It's a very dynamic place, despite all the pressures that they are under, and a lot of it is self-imposed, thanks to the Iranian regime's behavior for the last 40 years. But don't lose sight of this vibrant, very dynamic Iranian civil society. Look for Iranian art, music, cuisine, you name it. Contribution in all sorts of fields. And you will, I bet you, find an, an, a place not far from where you live where you can maybe taste some of that Persian cuisine or read that Persian poetry book that you might actually find interesting. There are about 5 million Iranians around the world, from New Zealand to Boston and you name it, everything else between. So you can find people if, if you're interested in that culture. And it doesn't need to just be about U.S.-Iran current stalemate, it can be so much else. As, as my two colleagues just said, Iran is actually, it's not where to find the news, it's how to make sure that you see all the various points and filter because there's so much coming out, both in Washington, the think tank world, 
the news areas, I do agree uh, with with uh, Ali's statement. You, Iranians put out a lot out there. Read it, read it with a critical mind as you would read anything else, but open up yourself to reading the other side. Right now also in the Gulf, there are new centers for Iranian studies. The one is now just opened in Saudi Arabia. Read their views because it gives you an idea of how the, the Arabs in the Gulf region are thinking about it. To have a, a more fuller agreement, and I, I do believe in arts, reading about the arts, reading about Iranian history, uh, not to become a historian, but to get a sense of how the country sees itself. And lastly, I, I've always been a fan of people-to-people -people contact. I understand it is very difficult right now. Iranians cannot come here, but there are other places to see them. Being aware that sometimes a government official, especially seeing an Iranian, could be uh, not very uh, easy for them or dangerous for their for their return back to Iran. But but at least to have the people-to-people -people contact and not cut all the relationship because this is how the future of that country is: is people, and and and, and to meet them with, of course, uh, if if you're a government official, uh, we're legally uh, accepted. But if you're not within the academia, to open up that, and that's where I think that that people-to-people -people contact should not be discouraged, but actually be encouraged. Great, thanks. So last question, what are you guys reading right now that our students should know about? Right now, I'm reading the memoirs of the head of Iran's uh, atomic energy organization. He was a student here in America. He studied at MIT. Uh, he uh, is from a religious family, but you know, well-to-do religious family and he made a brilliant career after the revolution. So that book is just an example of uh, how open uh, the, uh, some of the sources in Iran are. Iran is not North Korea. And is that available in an English language edition? Or? Well, well, unfortunately, right now it's only available <laughs> in Persian, you know, so, so the, the listeners have another excuse to learn Persian. As an Iran watcher, unfortunately, I spend all my day, it seems, to, to sort of read news coming out of Iran. But I do find an occasional time to read a good book or two. Uh, I usually try not to read books on Iran because I read so much else on Iran from, from news sources. But there's a book that I've been trying to read for 20 years, and I've had it for all that long, uh, Mantle of the Prophet by Ray Mutahedeh. And you can find it on Amazon, Mantle of Prophet. is a uh, wonderful scholar, I believe, at Harvard University, if I'm not mistaken. And Princeton. Princeton, I'm sorry. He was my teacher. Princeton. Ah, there you go. See, I'm, I knew I'll mess up at some point, but I would recommend that because I've just started reading it, but it seems to me to be very engaging and yet quite revealing about the nature of the Iranian Revolution in 79 and that what happened in decades that came after. Well, I'm glad that uh, that Alex mentioned uh, uh, the Battle of the Prophet that was written uh, about uh, a Ayatollah, who's also a PhD, who still actually teaches at Princeton. His name is Hussein Mudarasi, uh, uh, and he is a, a fantastic man. If you want to go to Princeton, go, you can go and find him. Uh, I am reading two books actually simultaneously, one which I should have read before, but I just found it. It's a recent publication by a colleague who, uh, his name is Afshud Ostavar, vanguard of the Imam. It is about the uh, IRGC. I'm finding it very, very in-depth and, and helpful. I'm not finished with it. The second book is by a very good friend, uh, Loire Sten, uh, Sternfeld. I highly recommend that for people to read it. Uh, he is an Israeli. The book is called Between Iran and Zion. It looks at the Jewish community in Iran. And I think it is one of those books that people want to read about what we just said, that Iran is North Korea. There's actually a 
there was a very vibrant Jewish community, but there's still some of them were there. And I think it's, it's, it, it gives you a different idea of what Iran is. So I'm reading one about IOGC and one about uh, the, the Jewish community in Iran. Ali Alfani, Alex Batanka, Amin Tarzi, thanks so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of the Marine Corps War College, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at at McWarCollege. Special thanks to our intrepid producer, Lieutenant Colonel Jason Palma. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at McWarCollege. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.